in a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars. One oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, this is Patrick Pister, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE and the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. I'm coming to you from the Western Galleria at the American Business Conferences. It's a long name, Craig. You might have to help me out yeah, with it. Yeah, the so get uh, it right. American Business Conferences, second annual Water Sourcing and Produced Water Management Congress, specific to the Permian Basin, <laughs> <It's> 2018. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Thank you. So we have uh, Craig Simpson, who is uh, part of the committee who puts this event on, and Amanda Brock, who is the MC, the Master of Ceremonies here. Is that uh, I guess I, I guess that's what I was roped into. I'm the Chief Operating Officer of Solaris Midstream. Yeah, so thank you all both for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. So, Craig, we were talking earlier. This is a very niche-down topic. Just by the, the title of it alone, it, it tells you exactly what it is, but it's also a an important thing in the industry. So, sure. How did you get into the industry, and, and why is this conference important to Personally, I got in the industry because I did a events and production as of over the last few years, and it was something that I wanted to do it was competitive. It was something that I wanted to do it was challenging, and there's a lot of research involved. And it's also a really good feeling to actually spend months on end organizing such a massive event and something that's so important to the industry as well. And then actually traveling over and seeing seeing it for you in, in, with your own eyes and seeing what you've put together and actually witnessing people actually learning and having a direct effect on people's lives within the industry and their uh, and their workplace. So that's why it suits me down to a T. Um, water management is such a massive subject within the oil and gas industry right now. We did a extensive research in my organization in terms of water management, uh, water sourcing, um, the disposal of produced water. And with the upturn recently um, within the industry and the uh, completions getting larger, fracks getting larger, obviously there's so much more water that people need to do things with. And that's why at the moment, the topic has really expanded over the last couple of years. It's always been big, but over the last couple of years, it's really has expanded. And that's why we've organized this event, obviously, in, uh, in Houston this week. Yeah, so I, I come from an offshore world where we have saltwater everywhere. And my biggest challenge with, with drill water was really just scheduling boats, which is, n- is not a big challenge. But on uh, land, and especially in the Permian Basin, where there's not a lot of uh, water you can use, getting it there, getting produced water out is a big challenge. And Amanda, you had some figures in your presentation about the just the sheer scope of what we're talking about when we say water management in the Permian Basin. I mean, absolutely. I think if we go you follow up on your offshore comment, you know, people who are familiar with offshore, you've got two issues, getting water, having your RO system so everybody can drink water and manage from a, a human perspective. But then, of course, you've got your produced water. And there you have to treat it on deck in a limited real estate to actually discharge. The difference here is as this market is growing and it is growing exponentially and the numbers you know, to give you a couple of numbers to put this in perspective, because this then translates into the human element of humans working in this environment to actually produce these numbers. In 1970, the annual output of the Permian was 9.6 million barrels. This year, we are producing 3.2 million barrels a day. And by 2023, we will be producing 5.4 million barrels a day. 
These are very recent numbers. Put that in context. Between now and 2023, we will add the daily output of all of Kuwait. <laughs> okay, this is crazy. These are huge volumes. Okay, so. <laughs> now we have to think about how are you going to do it? And a report came out two, two weeks ago, which I did reference yesterday, which is right now in the Delaware alone. So we're not even talking about Midland and the Delaware. In the Delaware Basin alone, we will produce 2.5 billion barrels of produced water and flowback water. So the question is, what are you going to do with this water? How are you going to deal with it? Are you going to dispose it? Are you going to treat it? Are you going to recycle? This means pipelines. This means infrastructure. This means facilities. This means SWDs for disposal and facilities. This means chemical treatment. And we all know the hazards of dealing with chemicals, particularly in remote locations. This means dealing with the lack of infrastructure, roads. If anyone's been out to the Delaware, you know, you will see that we have a problem with just basic infrastructure to support this phenomenal growth. So we really have to step back and look at these numbers, which are very real, which is stunning. The gift to the U.S. is this leads us to energy independence, which is what we have wanted. But we have to do this right. And it will be bumpy along the way. But these numbers tell a story of tremendous opportunity and also a story of caution of risk. Yeah, you know, one thing I'd like to add, we always see stories in the news about the bottlenecks in the Permian as far as midstream transporting oil, the hydrocarbons, but very rarely do you ever hear in the mainstream news articles about the issues that we have dealing with water. And I even see this investors in my company when I talk about the issues of what we have to do with our produced water. They're like, you know, what do you, what do you mean that we have issues with disposing water? And it's something that a lot of people outside of oil and gas don't even recognize that that's an issue that we deal with in the industry. And these numbers are pretty staggering. I had no idea that we were producing that much water and it's just going to keep growing. Well, do you think about the water cut, your water oil ratio. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we all know that you produce more water than you do oil. Yes. And in certain reservoirs, it's much higher. And so if we sort of, the problem is statistics are statistics and everything is growing so rapidly in the Permian that a lot of these statistics are wrong the minute they published <laughs> because, you know, you, you're sort of looking at statistics in the rear view mirror and you're trying to project forward, mm -hmm. you know, the average that is used for the Midland and Delaware, sort of the combined average is usually 5.4 barrels of water, produced water to every barrel of oil. Yes. And um, sometimes it's seven to one, you know, Somebody reported recently it was 20 to 1. Then you've got your flow back and your higher water cut. And so it's difficult, but you're having to deal with these huge quantities of water, which is sometimes oil companies say they aren't really you know, oil companies. They're actually water companies. <laughs> but think about a spill of produced water. I mean, that spill is basically hazardous. Yes. And you've got all of your issues associated with that. So it's not only just the human safety element. It's the environment. It's the trucking. So with the lack of infrastructure and everyone is pushing forward with midstream, one of the biggest issues out there, and I was out you know, in the New Mexico, Delaware mm -hmm. about two months ago, driving along a road early morning. The dust was phenomenal. Then I discovered, actually, it's not a road. It's a right-of-way that has become a road because that's what everybody <laughs> right, uses. It's just a beaten path um, now. It's, it's, well, it's actually, it looks like a damn road, but it's, it's a right-of-way that's become a road. The number of tanks that were being moved you know, if they were being moved on a freeway, you're going to have your truck in front, you're going to have your truck in the back, yeah. you're going to have your red flags, you're all going to slow down. It was actually crazy. 
There was a dead cow on the side of the road being from Africa. I was a little bit surprised about that because, you know, there were no vultures, but I was told even the vultures leave in winter. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's a barren, desolate place. But you look at the road deaths and you look at just the danger and the hazards of all of that trucking. Absolutely. Both for delivering equipment, for moving, hauling crude, for moving the water, the produced water. It's frenetic. Absolutely. But look at the numbers they're having to meet. Yeah, so Midland's actually my hometown, and I was just okay. in Midland two days ago. And while I was there over the weekend, I saw two wrecks that involved semi-trucks. And it's just become a massive, I mean, over the last six years, a massive problem with oil-filled trucking on the highways because, I mean, you have all your water haulers, all your sand haulers, and these guys are working long hours out in the field, you know, just nonstop transporting goods. And it becomes a serious safety hazard for everybody within those oil fields. So it's definitely a um, negative byproduct of transporting yeah, all that water. Absolutely. So where where is all this water going? We're talking about the volumes and, and trucking mm -hmm. the pipeline, but where is it actually going at the moment and where does it need to go? It's basin specific. I mean, if we're talking about Midland, Midland is a little more mature. It's more fragmented, the Midland Basin. And you really look at it on a county by county basis. And certain counties have obviously more infrastructure and a better rock. Most of that water is being disposed of. However, what we are seeing now is a lot more of that water is being aggregated. And with those aggregation of those volumes is being recycled, put into pits, put into ponds, is being reused for additional fracks. And so we are beginning to see operators really want to reuse as much as they can. Absolutely. And then facilitators like ourselves, we are, for a particular operator, we are delivering about 30,000 barrels a day of recycled water for their fracks. So we are aggregating produced water to our Ellenbergers from, you know, four or five different producers. Now we have more volume than if you were a single operator trying to reuse your volumes. We're able to more cost effectively at our SWD recycle. And instead of disposing, we basically bypass, treat a little bit more with filtration, with chemicals, and send out in the spec range they want um, for reuse. It's cheaper. It's better. It's a better utilization of all of your assets. And clearly, it's better for the environment. So it is, an economic, so it is cheaper. It's more cost-effective to, to treat and recycle is and reuse. Is it cheaper and better to recycle than to buy in that area? You'd be trying to buy fresh or Santa Rosa water and truck it in. Absolutely. The economics drive those decisions, but you need the infrastructure in order to be able to deliver that. Well, and not just infrastructure, you had mentioned some regulatory issues with moving water in and out of from Texas to New Mexico and back and forth. And and you, it was mm -hmm. interesting, I didn't even think about the challenges. I just want to move water, but can you give us a little information about why, why is it so hard to move water across state lines? Well, obviously these are state issues. And right now, the regulations, it's very, Texas has the rule of capture. So that means if you're a farmer, a landowner in Texas, you own the water beneath your land and you can extract as much water and depending if you're in a groundwater district, but basically you have the right to sell that water to an operator. And if that operator is in New Mexico, you can put out some lay flat and you can ship that water to New Mexico. So there hasn't been an issue to date of moving fresh water to New Mexico. But I want to back up for a second and say what constitutes fresh water. A Chevron, for example, will not use fresh water. They will use brackish water. And I think their standard is 2,000 ppm. 
World Health Organization standards for drinking water is, I think, 500. So you've got drinking water, you've got slightly salty water that the cows will drink, then you've got brackish water, which is very abundant, and then you've got produced water. And I think the freshwater threshold for the state of New Mexico is really 10,000, and they do not want, you know, they, they use that threshold as to how you then are going to deliver water. So New Mexico, you may not move fresh water from New Mexico into Texas. You can move fresh water from Texas into New Mexico. However, the current land commissioner of the state of New Mexico believes that because of the interrelation between aquifers that don't know there's a borderline ahead of them, that you can have adjudicated water rights on the New Mexico side and you can have a farmer on the Texas side who has basically got a straw in an aquifer and is withdrawing as much water and then selling it back to New Mexico. So they (laughs) have taken the position that they will not allow right-of-way access on state land for fresh water to go from Texas back into New Mexico. Wow. So I, it was a bad pun yesterday, but I really didn't mean it as a pun. I said it's a very <laughs> fluid situation. Right. <laughs> We're having to try and figure out what's going on. By the way, I just realized we both have accents on this side. Yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah. We so, reach all over there, and I was like, oh, it's. Uh... <laughs> as I said yesterday, I married a Texan. I hope it helps. <laughs> yeah, I'm interested in y'all's background. So, touching on that, you said you're from Africa originally? I am. Okay. Can you give us a little background on. Um, uh, I uh, yeah. got over to Houston. Born in a little country called Swaziland, okay. not Switzerland. It is indeed <laughs> Swaziland, notwithstanding people when I come to borders or, you know, the people at the airport. Was raised on a ranch in Rhodesia at the time, now called Zimbabwe. And there was a war back in the 70s. And at that time, my family were ranchers and farmers. And I think, you know, history shows that a lot of those farms were confiscated. Mm -hmm. after the end of that war. And as a consequence, I finished my undergrad in South Africa. And then my father took out a loan because we'd lost our ranch and everything, took out a loan to um, get an airline ticket to Louisiana, where I went to LSU Law School. It was my first spot that I landed in the United States. So that was my whole exposure to the United States was Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, yeah, it's definitely an interesting entry point into the United States. It was, and I'm, I'm a huge tiger. Saw my first football game and, you know, saw my first tailgating and discovered what that was. I was stunned. These people were just drinking out of the boot of their car. And, I'm like, and they were all wearing sort of triple net polyester purple. And I was like, this is really weird stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, huge target. But that's how I get there. And I um, studied law. And so that's another whole story. And then came to Texas to join the law firm of Vincent and Elkins. Oh, okay. Went on the yep. business side where I'm much better suited. Married a Texan and very good. two Texan sons. And that's it. A very interesting story. Yeah. What about you, Craig? Uh, how, did, how did you get into kind of the, the, the scope of the oil business? And where are you from originally? Sure. So originally I'm from a county called Cornwall which is in England, southwest of England. A lot of people say to me, oh, you know, where are you from? And I say, Cornwall. They say, oh, you know, whereabouts in London is that? And I'm like, well, actually it's not. You know, there is more to the UK than London. But ironically, I do actually live in London now. Okay. Um, so I moved away from Cornwall. I was 19 to a city called Sheffield up in Yorkshire. And I, I lived there for four years during university. And then I moved down to London for opportunities. I started working for a government department where I was for four years. And then I made the uh, skip over to the conference 
conference industry and the oil and gas industry with American business conferences around about seven months ago. So things have moved pretty quickly since then. I had my first event uh, run in Denver, Colorado a couple of months ago, which was um, fairly successful. Very good. Um, and then I've come back over here um, obviously this month for this event, which is so much bigger. And I think I'll be in Houston quite a lot over the next few months, awesome. hopefully the next few years. <laughs> so you actually put these events together from across the pond. That's it's right. A yeah. very remote process. Tell me a little bit about that because we put on very, a lot smaller scale events than this. Sure. We do uh, OGG and happy hours once happy a month. Hour. Yeah, we have about 200 people show up and just even for something like that, you know, it takes a lot of work and that's yeah. something, you know, we're here in Houston, we're very hands-on. So very interested to see, you know, how, how... First of all, how long does it take you to put together this process sure. for this conference? I mean, I'm, I'm imagining Colin's you guys for free business advice. Right yeah, now. yeah. So let me let yeah. me get some consultation from you. Obviously, you know, we wouldn't have to pay for the flight. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, firstly, I would say it's very difficult to see my friends because obviously doing a U.S. event, we're kind of working U.S. hours. Mm -hmm. So I don't start at eight in the morning like most of my friends do. I would start at um, you know eleven in the morning yep. to uh, get some things done over the first couple of hours, and then if I've got any communications to make with the guys over here, then obviously. I think you guys are six hours behind us, mm -hmm. so I can work until nine o'clock and it's still only three o'clock over here. So that is the first difficulty. So, you know, my friends are all like, oh, you know, do you fancy going to watch a show this evening at seven o'clock? And I'm like, no, I'll still be in the office for three hours. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's the first difficulty. It's funny, funny working over there. You, you know, around 11, 12 o'clock, the emails will start coming. It's like, oh, yeah. Houston's awake now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, right. some and of I'll Houston's tell awake. You, there are some HSE issues there because when you keep working those double hours, and then you travel back and you get that jet lag and you travel back, having done the Far East run. Yeah. Sometimes you have no idea. You know, you hit that three o'clock in the afternoon. Mm. Yeah. You know, if you're definitely. an office person, that works. But if you're out in the field somewhere, that three o'clock in the afternoon where you want to face plot. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it's expected. When, whenever you land, it's expected. You either go to the field, you go to the office, you start your work. You start. Because the yeah. office doesn't yeah. realize what your hours were yeah. that you were traveling. They want you to get in there. And uh, when we do it, it's just part of the industry. Yeah, I think we're having a, a lot more consideration now I've seen in the last few years where companies are starting to kind of realize that, you know, it's not the old school oil field mentality that we've seen, you know, in the previous decades. I think there is a lot of attention being paid to that, you know, hey, you just got off a flight. We don't want you coming straight out to the rig. I used to work for a company, Venture Global Technology, and I covered the Western Hemisphere. And obviously, we had the companies where I got off a plane and I went straight out to a rig. But I think we have seen a lot of improvement in that that aspect where people aren't running you into the ground all the time. So Permian's a little bit different. Permian's uh, still very much uh, running, running guns. So not to digress just on yeah, that point, what, looking at the HSE requirements for a, a major who's doing an HSE audit on us right now on some work we're doing for them. So they do under the MSA, they do their, their usual audit and looking at their their outlines and, and their, their T's and C's. And the one that jumped out at me, brought to my attention was no monster drinks. You know, they're in <laughs> really? black and white, no monster drinks. And yeah, so, almost uh, all companies now have a policy where you can't have any energy drinks on location. And, and that was the first time, you know, I had sort of seen that. And, and initially I just started laughing. And I said, okay, no monster drinks. You know, our rules would be only itty bitty drinks. And then you, know, you sort of start thinking about it and you realize that those monster drinks in that category you know, they keep you awake, but they may they dehydrate you, you. Dehydrate may keep you awake mm -hmm. too, too much. Too yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah you, you may be issues. physically awake, but you're not. You're not yeah. all there. Yeah. So, 
Craig, going back to this conference and Amanda, I want your input on this yeah. as well. So what is, what is y'all's goal holding these conferences? You know, what do you really want to do for the industry as far as helping out, you know, kind of solve these problems that we have with uh, produced water and fresh water? And Amanda, from your side, you know, coming from a company like Solar's Midstream, what type of benefit do you guys see from these conferences? So I'll let you go ahead, take it sure. Craig, for yeah. your goals. Well, I think it's um, really beneficial for us to bring so many people together from various parts of the industry. So you've got here um, large companies, you've got small companies, big operators, small operators, you've got service providers, you've got a range of different midstream companies, and it allows people they had to really environmentalists on the panel yesterday. actually, yes, we had we had the uh, Environmental Defense Fund, yeah. and we also had the Oklahoma Geological Survey. Oh, wow. um, okay. So we've kind of got a view from various aspects, and these guys want to. Talk to specific people, not only from, like I said, large operators or small operators or service providers. And it allows people to come together on an annual basis to really see what's happened over the last year, to share mm -hmm. their knowledge, not only the good things, not only good, the good things or the positive things, the things that have worked, but also the things that haven't worked. And I think it's really good for people to actually speak to each, each other and see what's actually going on and to share their views. And I think not only the case studies and the discussions that we've had, but also the networking opportunities in Definitely. between Definitely. where people People can actually, you know, look at something that maybe happens on stage and think, oh, actually, you know, I, I want to chase that up. I want to see that what, what's gone on there. They can go and uh, chase them up in the um, in the other room during a lunch or during refreshments. And they can go and actually exchange phone numbers and exchange details. And then that can allow that conversation to happen in the future. So I think it's really important for that reason. Definitely. Yeah, I think it's very important to bring a lot of intelligent people, a lot of different companies together, because this is a, a really big problem that we have to be able to figure out and mitigate. And, you know, I think it's a, a misconception outside of the oil and gas industry that oil and gas doesn't care about the environment. But I, I think it's the opposite, you know, from what I found in my experience is that we do want to do what we can to take care of the environment. And, you know, we have issues, you know, you know, earthquakes in Oklahoma and parts of West Texas that could be a result of water injection, things, things of this nature that we have to figure out. And I don't think anybody's going to figure it out on their own. Mm. It is a collective effort for everybody to figure out how we can do this to sustain our environment, but also in an economically viable way as well, because that's at the end of the day, it has to make sense uh, sure. on the books. So, well, and that's a good point. It has to make sense. We like data. We don't just, we don't do the knee jerk reaction. We're, it's a, we're a slower, more conservative industry, but we do that because we want to see the data. We don't just want to make a change because it's a hot button issue. We want to make a change because it's the right thing to do, but definitely. Th that's not to say that we don't care about the environment. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, the, the industry obviously is driven by LOE, but at the same time, there are many corporate mandates at the, you know, oil and gas companies where, you know, you do make the right choices. There's a lot of self-policing. I think from, from, from our perspective, the ability to bring thought leaders together, what happens in any industry is you have your silos. You have an operator. And even within the operator, you have your completions guy, you have your water source guy, you have this guy, and they don't necessarily have the same cost centers. They don't necessarily cross-pollinate, to just yes. use that word. Then you've got your treatment guys. I mean, some of the treatment guys had never seen pictures. You know, when I took them with my cell phone that I put up on the screen, it's like, well, that's what it looks like. They're coming up with, you know, whiz-bang treatment technologies that may never be used in the field because they are too much and you don't need them. Then you've got the midstream guys who are trying to sort of thread it all together. But is it midstream for everybody or is it a operator who's trying to like vertically integrate? What happens is you come together, those silos are broken down, you're able to have conversations, you're able to benchmark, 
you're able to begin to see best practices and you begin to see different solutions. And, you know, it means progress. Just to achieve these numbers, we have to be talking all the time about the solutions, the mitigants, the risks, the opportunities, the technology, how we deal with both environmental, social, people, Mm -hmm. skill set. All of these issues have to be addressed or we don't achieve these numbers and we won't actually take advantage of the gift of geology. Absolutely. Yeah, it's funny that you're talking about deep data silos because I advise a uh, startup, Wellhub, and that's their whole mantra is that we have these deep data silos within oil and gas and there's no intercommunication between different departments within EMPs. And you can start, you can look at that at a macro level, but you can also look at it at a micro level as well. You know, just like you said that you could have an EMP, but then you have your completions drilling and nobody's talking to each other. So bringing everybody together and kind of taking down those barriers and, you know, allowing open conversation. It's funny because when you're out on a location, on a drilling location, the biggest thing that you talk about in your in your safety meetings is good communication. If we have good communication amongst everybody on location, we can mitigate the majority of the risk. But we don't take that necessarily to the macro level where we have good communication between organizations, companies. And I think that, you know, having conferences like this where you bring everybody together is a very good way to kind of open up that dialogue. Well, and the problems aren't simple. We've been talking about the logistics and the infrastructure issues with getting water from point A to point B. That sounds simple enough. Well, we're either going to truck it or we're going to put it on a pipeline. Mm -hmm. And one of the speakers yesterday was talking about, well, moving produced water for an operator across land owned by somebody who's selling fresh water to that same operator, you're cutting into their economics, so they don't want to allow you right away to, to put that pipeline there. It's another factor variable to get around that at, at surface level is like, all right, well, we, we have point A, point B, let's build it. And there's there are other variables, whether it's regulatory. We have no or imminent domain. We have no imminent domain in, in this industry. So unlike, you know, gas and oil, there we here we have to deal with landowners. That particular speaker was sort of making a joke, but actually it's not a one-off. He was talking about you can have large diameter poly out there or you can have lay flat and you'll get somebody who is mad or somebody who's bored and they decide <laughs> great target practice. Yeah, putting, and, a, putting a bullet hole and, in, a, in a pipe. I mean, yeah. it's not like it's happened once. <laughs> I mean, and honestly, we will have conversations when we are talking about putting in a particularly temporary infrastructure as to where are we, where are we going, and it has come up more than once. Let's not do that. We need to be a little more careful. Let's go ahead and bury that. We don't want somebody taking a shot at it. And you think that's crazy, but you really, it goes into, you know, your risk factor. Yeah. Well, when he was talking about it, I didn't think it was malicious. I was actually thinking of a hunter, just not not thinking about what was behind his target and putting a hole in it. I grew up in West Texas. There's definitely malicious (laughs) (laughs) activity out there. You may call it malicious, you know, but but yeah, it has malicious, you know, implications. You just wonder what's going to happen. What what happens happens if I shoot this? Yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, I'm really interested to see how conferences like this kind of bring the industry together. How do you guys, do you guys get feedback from your attendees, sure. from your, from your, uh, I saw that you had some booths set up there with like select yeah. energy services. Do you guys take that feedback and then 
how do you how do you work with that to make your next event better? Yeah, so um, obviously it's word of mouth. Um, I was speaking to various people yesterday and how they feel it, it compares to other events that they've been to on uh, not only from other uh, other organizations but also our, our organization and how how it compares to last year, how it compares to perhaps the water management event that was in the Marcellus a few months ago. But we also have feedback forms. Every uh, every de- um, every delegate receives a feedback form, and every sponsor receives a feedback form with um, you know questions that are specific to them okay. and um, we take those feedback forms back and really analyze the uh, the data that we've got there and um, consider that for the next event so yeah okay. uh, absolutely and that's really important to us because at the end of the day how are we supposed to improve as an organization how are we supposed to improve our conferences and our events if we don't hear from the people that are actually attending uh, because um, you know this is this is set up for them I got one question for you you have a conference based on the Permian Basin but mm-hmm. you hold it in Houston do you guys do that because you have more headquarters uh, based here in Houston. What do you think about having conferences in the actual, in the plays themselves in the basins? Because it seems like there is a lot of knowledge that would come from the people that are actually there dealing with the issues. So one of the questions on the feedback form this year that we've added in is, do you feel that a water management event would be uh, suitable for Midland? And basically, would you attend? The reason that we have it in Houston is you're correct, because a lot of the headquarters are based here. A lot of the offices are here and there. And the infrastructure in Houston is obviously um, so big as well. The hotels are here, the restaurants are here, and uh, people are more attracted attracted to go to Houston because obviously they can go wherever they want. The airport's obviously so much bigger as well. Makes but sense. it is certainly a question that we've got ourselves because, you know, maybe we could hold one in Houston. Maybe the maybe the audience would be different. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'd be aiming it at different types of people. So maybe the agenda would be different. But it's, it is a question that we've got to ask ourselves. Do we hold one in uh, Houston and in Midland in the actual plays itself? We've got two other water management events as well. We hold one in Pittsburgh and we hold another one in Denver. So this is the kind like the one in the middle okay but but yeah it's certainly a question that's worth asking and um perhaps but, but i have heard several can. people say that they have other meetings scheduled because they're hardly ever in houston or their clients are aren't it is good meetings. yeah you can come so here. it's you know it's a side you know off from the conference but it's a benefit for i know some of the delegates that have talked about yeah, yeah come here yeah. and get some networking done yeah. business meetings while you're in town so that definitely works yeah. out good so we're talking about the the the, the delegates that are here in the in the booths uh amanda what is what are some of the interesting things that you've seen from the the exhibitors? Is there anything that's new technology, new processes, new new that's going to help improve, or is it iterative changes that people are making? I think it's iterative changes. Although there is a booth there, I think automation is something that everybody is really you know focused on, and better automation, which deals again with more effective risk mitigation, deals with operator risk. Um, I think everybody is focused on automation. There's an automation booth there that people should really go take a look at and, and try and understand how you can import different technologies from different industries into ours. And, yeah, and if automation is the way of the future, and it's if you get hands-off equipment, it's safer, it's more efficient. It's it's. Uh, I think you're right. Um, that's the way we're going. Amanda, if I could get some insight from you. So I'm a big technology buff. Mm-hmm. I love seeing how we can implement new technology into the oil and gas business, and I'm very interested in water recycling. Mm-hmm. And I know very little about it. How much progression have we made in that sector in the last several years? And do you have any outlook on what that looks like moving forward in the future, next five to 10 years? Because, you know, I didn't know that water recycling was actually really viable at this point. So I'm really keen to hear some insight on that if you have any. So when we talk about reuse and recycling, let's be very clear. Technology exists and has existed for a while to clean produced water, 
to a point where you can drink it or to a point where you can discharge it to the environment or if you have the permits where you can use it for livestock mm-hmm. or for agriculture. That has always existed in recent times. Okay. However, the issue is the cost. Yes. Can the cost to do that be borne? And is it necessary by the regulations for you to clean it up to that level? Mm-hmm. So in the early advent, when hydraulic fracturing was a nascent business, everybody thought you had to clean produced water to a pretty high standard. So it was expensive. Okay. But at this point, with the evolution of the industry, those treatment standards have come down pretty dramatically. Okay. And so you do not have to treat the water to the same level of spec in order for it to enable your frack and for it also to not have a detrimental effect on your well bore and, you know, yes. what you're doing. Okay. So where is treatment going? In some respects right now, less. But in the future, if there are shortages and regulations drive it, there may be higher levels of treatment because you're looking at conjunctive use. Okay. If I treat it, can somebody else use it? So do you see regulation kind of being a big driver uh, for pushing? Regulation pushing? is always a driver. Okay. However, this industry and self-policing and self-policing and also being motivated by cost mm-hmm. and LOE Definitely. has really pushed the envelope. Definitely. To understand what technologies are out there that can be cost-effectively used. Yeah, Espe- to, especially you know, in the last several years absolutely. in the downturn, you know, everybody's looking, how can we be more efficient right. within our operations as is? So definitely, um, you know, I, I think that's a benefit when you do have a recession in, in product price that it does force companies to kind of look more towards technology and how we can do things a bit different. But yeah, that's uh, very interested to see how that plays out in the next few years. I think that could... Um, change up a lot of things if we start looking more towards treatment and recycling than absolutely and there were some you know some um interesting new technologies that um, one of the speakers was talking about i think there's a lot of opportunity there we are getting to a point where we need to start wrapping up so i think we're going to do the red wing safety tip of the week amanda we talked about giving you the red wing safety tip for this week Um, do you have something for our listeners can i just tell a story rather than a safety tip Absolutely. Um, safety. Well, actually, it turns out to a safety tip. Circumstance in Midland, I think it was about um, nine months ago, a fatal accident. A woman was driving and she rear-ended a produced water truck that was turning into an SWD. The driver of that truck was turn signal was on. Everything was completely appropriately executed. When they investigated... Her mascara brush was on the front um, trailer, which meant she was most likely driving late and driving quickly and putting her makeup on and never saw the truck in front of her. So in an inverse safety tip, because I know there are many more men most likely listening to this than women, don't use mascara while you're driving. It's, it's uh, unfortunately things like that happen. And, and we talked about the, just the sheer amount of truck volume that's up there more and more are going to happen until the pipelines can get installed. But, you know, it's, it's really one of the biggest risks. Could have so been, be careful. The point being, it could have been texting as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So we give away a Red Wing offshore bag. We call it offshore bag, but it's really just a, uh, a bag right there. The Red Wing bag. Red Wing gives away one a week. If y'all want to go online, you can enter to win as well. You go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. 
See official site for rules and details. And like I said, we give away one a week. So go register and uh, hopefully you'll get it next week. We have a companion to the show. There's a LinkedIn group, the Oil and Gas Global Network. That's uh, If you just go on LinkedIn and type in OGGN, we usually pop up pretty high on the list. And we pu- publish our shows there in addition to put them on the URL, which is just oilandgashse.com. Events. Colin mentioned we have a monthly happy hour. We're doing last Tuesday of the month. That's yeah, last hour, right? yeah, last Tuesday of the month. Last Tuesday of the month in Houston. We're thinking of expanding. By the time the show comes out, we may have already started up the second one somewhere uh, else in the country. But yeah, um, do we have any other events coming up? I think that's it for us. So Amanda and Craig, thank you for being on the show. If there's any place people want to go to find out more about you, LinkedIn, the company website, where do you want to? Company website's great. LinkedIn as well is fine. And that is solarismidstream.com. That's correct. And Craig, I know you've got some more events coming up. You want to give some information about Absolutely. when, where, and how to Absolutely. register? So uh, yeah, we have an event in machine learning and artificial intelligence applied to the upstream activities of oil and gas, um, which is going to be really, really interesting. It's a new event that we We've got, and that's on August 29th and 30th. Um, we're turning to Houston for that one. And then we're back in Houston for the Wellsite Facilities event, which is always a big one on the 18th to the 20th of September. And then we've got a similar event to this one this week, which is based on water management. And that will be in Denver, Colorado. So um, across the Rocky Mountains specifically. And that's in October on the 24th and 25th. I think we're going to try and get to that one, but uh, we'll put um, links to all the registrations in the show notes. So if anybody wants to go and find them, just go to the show notes. You can get a direct link there. So I uh, appreciate it. Thank you all for taking the time and uh, sharing to your yeah, thank, thank you, thank you very thank much. You. Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London, to Dubai, 